It's one of our most ambitious city transformations to date. Light rail from the Wellington railway station to the southern suburbs and a new tunnel for buses and cars. All part of the government's long-awaited plan to lower emissions and make the capital less congested. But the aptly named Let's Get Wellington Moving was almost stopped in its tracks. Well, it is D-Day for Let's Get Wellington Moving. The council will vote on a motion of no confidence today as seven councillors push for the programme to be scrapped. It includes a second Mount Victoria tunnel, light rail running to Island Bay and banning cars from the Golden Mile. Getting people out of their cars to reduce emissions and congestion. It survived the council vote, but there's something that just isn't all that popular taking cars off the Golden Mile. You have to park how many miles away to get to where you're going? It's rubbish. Bloody ridiculous. Isn't it? It's terrible because people are going to lose their jobs. They've gone overseas and done their OE and their backpacking tours and come back and want to turn us into Amsterdam. But this is Wellington. We're a bit different, you know. It's just that the Let's Get Wellington Moving programme is not effectively delivering what we need as a city. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, Wellington's plan for car-free central city streets is hardly groundbreaking, especially when you compare it to what other cities around the world are doing. Why are our cities pushing to pedestrianise, and why are we so resistant to it? Erin Gawley is a local government reporter for The Post and Stuff. If you've ever visited Wellington, you have definitely seen the Golden Mile. It's the inner city streets from Lambton Quay up Willis Street, across Manners Street and onto Courtney Place. Right, so it's quite a big area. Why is it called the Golden Mile? It's called the Golden Mile because that's where a lot of Wellington's retail revenue comes from, basically. I think it's something like 30% of the shops in the central city are located on that stretch of street. Oh, wow. So what's traffic like on those streets at the moment? Traffic is busy. If you if you end up driving on the Golden Mile, it's a bit of a nightmare. To be honest, I always try to avoid it, and I live in the inner city. But if I get stuck on Lambton Quay or something, you're just waiting there, and you're like, this is so slow. You're stuck behind buses. There are pedestrians trying to walk in front of you. It's pretty chaotic. So it's not going to be completely pedestrianised. There's still going to be spaces for buses, cyclists, and the like. Is that right? Yeah. So buses, there will be, yes, bike lanes. Um, I think some of those will be shared with pedestrians where it's just a really wide stretch of footpath that, you know, bikes or scooters or pedestrians can go on. Um, There will also be a permit system which allows certain people, like if you live in an apartment on the Golden Mile and you've got a car park, um, if you're, I think some businesses will be allowed deliveries, um, people like tradies, people with mobility permits will be allowed in. So there are quite a few exceptions. So there will still be traffic. Okay, so that's a golden mile. Take me back to 2016. And they had this new big plan called Let's Get Wellington Moving. Yeah, so it's the history of Wellington's transport is basically that nothing has happened significantly in the past 30 years. Congestion has just kept getting worse. Um, I'm sure... Visitors to Wellington have been stuck in the queues of traffic trying to get out to the airport through the Mount Vic Tunnel. Traffic is really a problem in the city, and Let's Get Wellington Moving was about essentially solving those congestion issues and looking at the places that transport needs to change in Wellington. And taking cars off the Golden Mile is just one small part of the plan. It includes light rail from the airport to the city centre, a new Mount Victoria tunnel, and a bunch of safety and infrastructure improvements across the city. 
It's a big, ambitious shift Wellington's committed to. It's essentially about trying to move the 80,000 people, that's the population figure they use, who are expected to move into Wellington over the next 30 years. It's about how do we move those people in a way that's sustainable and that doesn't clog up the roads even more. There's certainly a lot of opposition to this whole thing, though. There's recently been a big open letter signed by heaps of local business people saying they don't really want this. So what are they saying? Yeah, that's right. And so they're essentially pretty worried that the plan, because it removes those extra car parks and those extra lanes of traffic which are on the Golden Mile, will significantly decrease the amount of people going to their businesses. Do you think it's unrealistic this year to expect to be able to drive down a street like Lampton King, your private car, and just you know go into a car park and just pop in for a few bits and pieces? I think that has been an unrealistic thing in Wellington for a very long time, really. Like, since I've lived here, I haven't really wanted to drive down the Golden Mile. I just don't think recently there has been a time where you can just kind of pop in and get an on-street car park and go to a shop. It's not a small town. It is the capital city. Whenever you have a project like this, there is always this kind of backlash from businesses who are worried. And you can understand that at a time when it's quite tough for businesses. Um, And there are a lot of buildings for lease in the central city, but it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense when you look at the evidence, which is that in cities that have done this overseas, businesses have raised similar concerns, but when the changes have happened, it's actually turned out to be quite a boost for them in most cases. Cities like Dublin, London, which all kind of showed a similar trend. I guess people's argument to this is Wellington isn't a London, it isn't one of these big cities, it's this cool little capital, isn't it? So people say it might not work for Wellington. Yeah, and you do hear that a lot. But I think, again, if you live in Wellington, you know that there is a pedestrian rush hour at the time when people get out of work and there are hordes of people walking down Lambton Quay and up Willis Street to get home. So it is a city that is already using a lot of public transport and a lot of active transport. And this is really about kind of catering to that and um, giving those people who are already walking, already taking the bus, a faster and more efficient way to you know, get home at the end of the day, maybe visit some local businesses on the way home. Wellington isn't the only city centre facing out cars. Dunedin's done it. It's been more than three decades since the last upgrade and the council has earmarked more than $28 million to make the area more people-friendly with new paving, street furniture, lighting and public art. Tauranga is going that way. A plan for the western corridor of Tauranga and free up the city's congested roading network. Tauranga is the worst city in New Zealand for traffic. Goodness me. In fact, New Zealand's part of a global trend to make cities more pedestrian-friendly. Kent Lundeberg is an urban planner and designer at MR Cagney in Auckland, and he worked on one of the city's biggest CBD projects. For the last five years, I've worked with the city centre, Auckland Council, and the Auckland Design Office. I helped the team develop what is called Access for Everyone, so it's a traffic circulation plan that we designed that would organise traffic in a way that frees up space for people walking and cycling and more public spaces. And that ultimately led to the Queen Street pilot, which is the effort to remove traffic from Queen Street and prioritize buses, kind of roll out the red carpet for buses um, down the length of Queen Street. 
and redirect traffic away from Queen Street. So it's a, it's a pretty significant change. So th- these are changes that have been proposed over the last 50 years, removing traffic from Queen Street. It's been popular, but it certainly wasn't popular when the idea was put forward, was it? No, that's right. And that's the kind of the curse that we're in. We're in this kind of constant circle of like proving a concept and showing it's popular and then going to the next street. And so the, another really good example of that is Freiburg Square, where which I think now has turned out to, to be the nicest public space in New Zealand. There was a time when there was a traffic lane that cut through Freiburg Square outside of Ella Melville Hall. When they proposed to close that that lane of traffic, it became, you know, quote unquote, controversial. But the reality was all of the kind of submissions was like 95% in favor of it. So it's, it tends to become convenient for like a media story when the reality is if you ask um, a range of people, the truth tends to be more in favor of, you know, wide scale improvements in our urban environments. Yeah. Well, can you tell me about the movement of pedestrianisation over time? I mean, it's been popular at some points, not popular at other points. Where did this idea come from? Yes, I think the term pedestrianisation probably needs a, a little clarification. In the 70s, pedestrianisation was very common in at least North American main streets, where downtown main streets, high streets, were trying to compete with the newly formed malls. The way that they thought they could do that was by closing the main street to traffic and putting pots and plants out front. And ultimately, hundreds of those schemes failed. Why? Those streets didn't have a captive audience. You know, there's still very much a car-based areas, so you couldn't really get a density of people going to them. The, the successful pedestrianization projects and remain ones that are very close to universities. They benefit from having, you know, thousands of people on top of them. And I think that's where we see the success in places like Auckland, where we have, we have 40,000 residents living in the city center now. And we have 40,000 people coming to every day to work. Okay, so it kind of started it in the 60s and 70s. When did it kind of become a popular thing for councils, local government to try and do elsewhere? Yeah, so I guess there's probably two reference points um, I can use it globally. So in the 90s in France, they they used um, pedestrianization and kind of reorganization of their city streets around light rail. So it's what's known as the light rail renaissance in France. So a lot of cities did that kind of in conjunction with increasing public transport in a way that was really attractive and visible to people coming into the city. Um, In the 90s, uh, Italy also created these rules around traffic access in city centers called um, limited traffic zones. And so it enabled every mayor in every city to just kind of establish which streets could have traffic and what was that certain type of traffic that was allowed and what time of day it was. So the places you kind of normally consider as like really attractive European settings that people want to spend time on holiday, a lot of those were full of cars at one point. And so Italy has been removing cars from their city center for what's now 30 years. I think the New Zealand example, Auckland is probably a good one, is probably, I'd say it's more incremental. And I think we probably don't recognize the changes that have been happening over the last 20 years. So things like, um, well, Key Street five years ago, just an amazing project that went from four lanes of traffic, 25,000 cars a day to something like 10,000 cars a day. Car traffic just disappeared. Um, And now we have an amazing waterfront. And then we have the square out front of Britomart, Tukomi Tatanga. 
Um, but then we also have Albert Street doesn't really have on-street parking. Simon Street was created as a pedestrian spine um, to get to the hospital. So that removed a lot of on-street car parking and put in bus lanes. So we've do been doing a lot of, I guess, kind of transitional work. A lot of it is squeezing in a bus lane in place of car parking or squeezing in a bike lane in a gutter, which is not necessarily great. It's kind of a, assigning traffic to certain streets it just unlocks an incredible amount of space. Mm. Where does this traffic go? I mean, we talk about Key Street and we talk about all those cars getting off that street. I mean, doesn't this just create congestion elsewhere? Yeah, the, um, the, the amount of traffic coming into the city centre has been relatively fixed for about 20 years. So about 37,000 people can drive into the city centre over the two-hour period. What's changed is the way that we've provided space for public transport. So that's enabled the city to grow strongly over the last 20 years, allowing people to get to the city in buses and trains. In particular, the, the extension of the rail network through Britomart was probably the most transformational um, project to date. But that traffic, it disappears, is, is, is what happens with it. So it either is rerouted around the motorway network or it's remoted. So people that used to take that trip are now have chosen to take the bus or to take the new cycleway on um, on the waterfront, or they're just retimed it. So they're not coming in at 8.30 to fight traffic. They're coming in at 9.30. And we see that we're much less fixed on getting to work at 8.30 these days. So there's a lot of kind of time shifting happening now. So it doesn't really congest the motorways. It's just encouraging people to use different forms of transport, like walking, cycling. Yeah, that is one of the benefits of it. So there's the cities that have done this in a kind of transformational overnight pathways, like Ghent in Belgium, they saw an, like uh, 20% rise in public transport in a year and like the same amount of growth in cycling. So it's like there's a lot of research that suggests that like, organizing traffic like this with traffic restrictions on certain streets is one of the best ways to achieve mode shift, which is tech terms for encouraging people to take public transport. But encouraging people to change their ways when our cities have been built for cars is no easy feat. What Kent calls mode shifting, from a private vehicle to public transport, walking, or like NZ Herald senior writer Simon Wilson, cycling. I rode a bicycle today. I have an e-bike. I ride it as often as I possibly can. But do you like your car? Do you Not have much. A car? I have a car. I try to avoid driving it. Um, I need it for some things. I used it on the weekend to buy some timber at the hardware store yeah, can't really carry that on a bike and we use the car to go away um, for holidays but not much else. Yeah well our cities are all about the car really aren't they that's how they've been built I mean how did that happen? Um, they are about the car uh, New Zealand cities uh, went through a process after the Second World War, which uh, a lot of cities around the world went through, uh, particularly in America, where public transport was slowed down and stopped, tram lines were pulled out, and suburbs were built further away, uh, and motorways and roads were built to get to those suburbs, and there was a political decision made very widely around the world. We will use the car to spread out our cities, to give people backyards and lots of ability for kids to run around and, and the quality of life that goes with that, uh, and the car will enable it. So that was a logic, yeah? That was the logic, yeah. Um, 
And uh, in Auckland, uh, it meant that whole new suburbs were rapidly developed. In 1959, the Harbour Bridge opened uh, and the whole of the North Shore developed on that basis with almost no public transport, just entirely done with motor cars. And is there a move now to turn that on its head and turn it back to what it was? What's changed? Well, a whole lot of things have changed. What has happened since then is that we've simply kept adding more and more cars. So the answer to that has been we'll add more roads, more roads to cater for the increased demand from the extra cars. And what that does is encourage people to buy even more cars and more driving. So if you uh, look at my parents' generation, we had a car. We lived on a train line in Wellington on the um, Johnsonville line. My father rode the train to work every day. His equivalents today wouldn't dream of that. And so that changed. The perception of we use the car to do these things changed as well. New Zealand now has one of the highest rates of car use in the world. Uh, And most of the journeys that we use our cars for are really small, just a couple of kilometres. We use them to nip down to the shop. We use them to pick up the kids from school. We use them in all sorts of ways that previous generations wouldn't have dreamed of using a car for. So we're trying to make it more pedestrian-focused, are we now, to try and alleviate some of the pain and the issues that we've caused over time? Well, it's it's also a looking-ahead issue. Uh, it's about alleviating pain, yes, but we're also looking ahead and going... We can't just sprawl, keep sprawling the cities into the countryside. That destroys the, the ability of the countryside to produce food, uh, but it also creates all sorts of issues of clogging up the roads with more traffic. There are environmental issues. We, we do know we've got to address our emissions, and in this country, in Auckland in particular, Auckland, uh, 40% of our emissions are from transport because we drive so much. Yeah, so we've got, to, we've, we've got to address those things. And at the same time, we know that it has to be possible for us to solve our housing crisis in a way that creates a lot more affordable homes, tens of thousands more affordable homes. And to do that, the most cost-effective and functionally efficient way to do it and meet those other objectives uh, is to build more densely, closer to rail links uh, and bus services uh, and in denser environments where there's more going on, it's more interesting and more exciting. People also think that, you know, we could never be like Amsterdam or Copenhagen, which are the kind of poster cities for for cycling and and for walking because they've always had that culture. And it is true that a lot of people have always cycled in those countries. But those cities, right into the 70s, were clogged full of cars. There are lots of photos of of streets that are now pedestrianised, which used to carry thousands of cars, and people thought there was no other way. But protest action, lobbying, political will... um, all of those things push change and change and change, and um, it flipped over. So we just don't have the political will to do this? We don't have a lot of political will to do it in this country. It's a great shame. One of the problems we have is that there is a, a political idea that sounds like it's the centrist, moderate, right thing to do, which is that our transport planning should suit all all modes. So everybody gets enabled. It becomes easier to do everything. The problem with that is if you keep making it easier to drive private cars, people will keep driving 
private cars. Now, what you have to do is make it easier for people to catch a bus because the bus won't be clogged up in traffic uh, or ride a bike safely. And we don't need to look overseas for those for, for that. We can see it right here in Auckland. The Northern Busway opened in 2008 uh, in Auckland. Prior to it opening, this is dedicated bus lanes, people on the North Shore said, we will never catch a bus, we drive. Now, close to 40% of commuters crossing the Harbour Bridge in the morning are on a bus. Yeah, why do you think politicians take this line? Is it just a fact of not really wanting to rock the boat and oh, yeah. make sure they get that vote in the centre? There is a pervasive thought that you see all the way through politics in this country and many other countries, and, and that is... How do we fix a problem without asking anyone to change their behaviour? It's mm. very hard to do that. It's very hard to say to people in an election or any other time, uh, we want you to think about doing this differently. Once it's there, people adapt. You know, the, the trivial example is plastic bags. People thought that would never be possible. Look how easy that was. We've been sold the idea right through the 20th century that motor cars are fantastic for us and in so many ways they have brought freedom, flexibility, autonomy. But actually, you're stuck in traffic on the southern motorway in Auckland. You don't have a lot of freedom or autonomy. You're just stuck in traffic. Back to Kent and what's happening in Wellington. So I did early concepts of the Golden Mile. Some of the things that are interesting about that proposal is that Wellington already has a lot of these tools kind of in place, like Manor's Mall is already a bus-only street. And some of the proposed, you know, the next steps, what's been proposed at the Golden Mile are effectively kind of extensions of that successful um, approach. But what the, the option that the councillors chose really doubles down on public transport priority, and it unlocks a tremendous amount of public space in footpaths. A lot of businesses sent to the mayor saying, stop this, it's bad for us. Yeah, and I really sympathise with the retailers. And I think when we're talking about transformations, there is a real challenge with disruption on footpaths and out front and jackhammers working for six months outside your shop. There's a real implication of, of that. What I like to think about, first of all, how do we address those impacts how do we make sure that they can still get service and delivery? How do we keep footpaths open? How do we communicate to the public that those people are still in business? The other thing I think is thinking about we don't have the proper voices to be advocating for that macro level of we want to make our city nicer. It's going to be tricky right now, but ultimately it's going to be a nicer place to visit, nicer place to spend time, and places where people are going to want to spend money and civic kind of opportunities that are afforded us here. So like going to the art gallery or attending you know, a teacher's strike on Queen Street, those kind of things that are, make, make our New Zealand cities really special. That's it for today, I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Erin Gawley, Kent Lundberg, and Simon Wilson, Kakiti Anna.